Turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Uh, we'll read the scripture in just a, a little bit. We're going to compress it uh, today. We're only going to get through the first point on your outline, talking about the world that subtly opposes us and focusing on discerning and being decisive when that comes. But uh, before I pray, I wanted to remind you, it's on the back of your, your worship guide. Dr. Sam Karui, are you here? Doctor, he's, out, he's outside? Is he just visiting? Or Here he comes. Dugu Yangu. Okay. That's, that's Swahili, by the way. Sam taught me that. This is Dr. Sam Karui entering on cue. <laughs> and I say doctor, I emphasize that. Dr. Sam Karui, he just received his Ph.D. He's been working on it uh, for a long time. Yes, praise the Lord, since you were 12, I think. Uh, <laughs> okay, you celebrated by clapping. Uh, yes, it, it is a praise, but we are going to celebrate with him. Uh, on uh, September the 23rd, that's a Thursday night, and we would love for the whole church family to come and celebrate with Sam, hear about what God is going to be doing next with him and his ministry, and so just mark that. Again, it's on the back of your worship guide, and uh, would love for you to be there for that. Father, we thank you and praise you that we can celebrate life as a family and, uh, Lord, when there looks like there is little cause for celebration in the world around us and even sometimes in our own personal lives, uh, we just echo the words of the song that we just finished singing, whatever you ordain is right. And so give us the wisdom, the discernment from your word, uh, applied to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can know what we need to do, even as Ezra did. And Lord, I pray that this uh, message today would be uh, penetrating, would be uh, enlightening, but even more than that would be uh, transformative uh, in the, the content and in the application of it for our lives today. So we thank you for what you are doing Thank you for the ministry through Heritage that you are doing right now. And we pray for all of the different situations that are going on around us. We think of the situation still going on in Afghanistan, the remnants of the hurricane and the lives lost and the destruction. And help us to be pointed personally uh, to the gospel and help us to point others to the gospel is the only hope. So we thank you and pray now. Would you attend the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit and do your work as only you can do it? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me go back and remind us why we study an Old Testament book like the book of, of, of Ezra and we'll study Esther and we'll study Nehemiah all together because this wraps up Old Testament history. We take a pause for 400 years and then the New Testament comes on the scene but I want you to remember something about this, and this is why we preach the whole counsel of God. The whole Bible is for us. Paul reminds us in Romans 15, whatever was written in former times, that's this right here, 
was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so, this passage that we're reading today in the book of Ezra, as we go through it, it's also, it's not just a historical fact, which it is, okay? But it's also instruction for you and for me as to how we are to live the Christian life with endurance and with hope. Here's the picture that we have so far. If you haven't been here, you can go back and review. But it's a picture of Judah, that's the northern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin all together. They have been in captivity. They have been in darkness for 70 years, and God has miraculously brought them out. Now, folks, if that's not a picture of salvation coming out of darkness into light, I don't know what is. But then we find, and we found last week, that they are brought to engage in true worship. They rebuilt the altar, and then they began to rebuild the place of meeting with God. Let me emphasize, as I have done over and over again, and, and every once in a while I get a report back of, of something that God has said to you during your own personal quiet time. I cannot emphasize too strongly the value of having the discipline of a personal quiet time where you take the Word of God in, you pray, you allow the Holy Spirit to apply that Word of God to your daily life every day. And that's a picture of what we're seeing. But now we get into the process of sanctification, the building of the, the, the temple, the, the living out of the dynamics of the Christian life. And, and here is what the lesson today will be about. It'll be about this, this next Sunday, because the entire chapter and on through the rest of the book and on through the story of Esther and on through the story of Nehemiah and on through the history of the church, that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be opposition. Chuck Swindoll says that the Christian life is, is, is three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes, sometimes I've felt in my life, and I know you have probably too, that it's maybe a step forward and five steps back when you're really getting hammered. Here's what I want to say to you. The battle, the opposition to you growing in sanctification, set apart to the things of God, whether you're young or whether you're old like me, it will never stop this side of glory. Two places, I just picked out two. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. This is not a mild dislike. The world hates you. And then Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so today, we're going to go through the first part of that, verses 1 through 3. I am going to read this. We have not been reading the large swaths of Scripture, but we are going to read it today. I want you to listen very carefully to some of the words and, and try to pick up the, the tenor of the, the, the speech 
as we work through this because I don't know that you're really going to see until we go through it what's really happening here. Let me just say this. If Satan can keep a person as as we seek to take the gospel to the nations, if he can keep a person from hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ, I, I think he's very happy. But I think he turns cartwheels when a person is sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, the gospel, and they never respond to it. And then also those of us who do know him, but like we said last week, we just stop and we never move on with the Lord. I, I, let me just say this before we, I, we, we read the Scriptures. We, this last week, it was a, a reminder. Sometimes along the way you get these reminders. We happened to, to, uh, to cross paths again. They spent the night with us, a couple that we were in seminary to get with, um, Jan and I were worked together in, in a group called Young Life, and then he went in the ministry, and I went into the ministry different directions, and we got back. To, we hadn't seen each other in many, many years, and we were reminiscing about couples that we had known back in Young Life and how that their, their lives had become derailed. And, and sometimes not just derailed, but I'm talking about train wreck, affairs, infidelity, divorces, suicide. We must, it, it is critical to be aware of the fact that the world hates us. It's on the attack, and we must do something. So with that in mind, let me just read. You can remain seated. Normally stand for the reading of the Word of God and let you remain seated because I want you to focus on this. The world subtly, this is the first thing. The world's going to come at you in several different ways. We're going to see more next week about how it's going to come at you with, with, I mean, openly and with vitriol, I mean, hateful speech and all the rest of that. We've seen that. We see it all around us. But the first line that it's going to attack us in most often is going to be very subtle, very underhanded. And that's what we see here. And that's why discernment is something that we must develop develop individually and as a church. Verses 1 through 3, let's read about that. You follow along. Verses 1 through uh, 3 in in chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries... Let me stop there. They don't know that they're adversaries yet. There, there's a, we'll see that there's a sense in that, but we know it because of what's going to happen coming up. They don't sound like adversaries at the beginning is what I'm saying. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, these are not individual people. This is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin who've come out of slavery. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, this is significant, and said to them, these are the adversaries, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him 
ever since the days of Ershadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Let me say it again, no matter how it comes to you as a believer, the world is never your friend. Search it out in the Scripture. This kind of attack is subtle. Jesus warned us of this kind of subtlety. He said wolves, wolves are lost people. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to dress like Christians, act like Christians, sound like Christians, maybe sometimes smell like Christians, and yet they are wolves, ravenous wolves. They're going to come to you. And many times, again, it's going to be very subtle. Now, this is going to be true whether you are the youngest Christian sitting here today. I see some of my third and fourth grader Awana children. We're, we're going to do something just a little bit, so be ready. Whether you're the youngest or the oldest. I don't know who the oldest is in here today. A few of you could vie for that title. Ed, the world is still your enemy. It's still going to come subtly and try to trip you up. I wrote down this phrase, compromise. Here's what, here's what the world wants you to do. Students, children, older people, adults, if you're a follower of Christ, the world wants you to compromise your Christian walk under the guise of or dressed as being helpful and cooperating with you. You're going to be tempted to join with non-Christian entities, maybe, or non-Christians to accomplish God's work. We'll come back to this in just a second. I'm talking about all of the isms that are out there seeking to creep into the church, all of the belief structures, all of those kinds of things. Let's look at this, okay? Go back to verse 1. Adversaries, I mentioned that a minute ago, the enemies of God. Now, who were these people? Living in the land. These adversaries were a group of people descended, get this, from Jews who had remained in the land after the fall of the of the northern king, uh, the southern kingdom to Assyria. The Assyrians had brought in their own people, they had brought in their own worship, and they intermarried with the Jews. They are the ancestors of the Samaritans that existed in the days of Jesus that the Jews absolutely hated because they were half Jew, half pagan. 
It says the adversaries heard that they were rebuilding the temple. I don't know that this is true, but I just wonder if you jump back up into chapter 3 and verse 13. Remember what happened from last week? They were rebuilding the temple and some cried and some were rejoicing. It says so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. I just wonder, sometimes we we don't connect the real practical things that are there. I wonder if some of the people living in the land, they had noticed that the Jews were back, sure. But this shout got their attention, uh, attention, and so they assembled to see what was going on, and they saw that they were rebuilding the temple. And who did they come to? Zerubbabel. Now remember, who is Zerubbabel? He is a part, go to Matthew chapter 1, he is a part of the lineage of Jesus. And Zerubbabel at this point was the leader of the Jews who had been brought out of captivity. And we find Yeshua the priest was also there. And this is really, really key. I said this a minute ago. Also, the heads of the father's houses, every man that was the household leader was there. They were the leaders. These were the gatekeepers. So it wasn't, I'm going to apply it to today all the way through. It wasn't just the elders. It's the dads. It's the fathers. It's the grandfathers. It's the gatekeepers. They came to them. Satan will generally, and the world system will generally come through the gatekeepers. We live in a time when in many places the gatekeepers have abandoned their position. This is huge. They came to them. Now, the request sounds reasonable. Look at it again. I'm going to put my glasses on to see it. Verse 2, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God, your God, hmm, as you do. And we have been sacrificing. This this is the first real giveaway. I think uh, Zerubbabel was already up on this, but this was a dead giveaway ever since the the days of Ershadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, a little history lesson. Who was this guy named Ershadon? He was the father of, that's right, look down in verse 10, How would you like to have a name like this? Oh, snapper. He was the father. These are Assyrian kings. This is huge in the history of the world. Remember, there are other things going on in the world, and there are other things going on in that part of the world. And so these were the two kings that played prominently in the taking of way. If you look down there in verse 10, and, and this is a whole other thing where, where the enemies are writing letters and they're going to, they're really, uh, how can I say it? They're trying to curry favor. Oh, noble and great Osnapper. Change your name, please. <laughs> actually, actually, his name was, was also, I'm not sure if it's much better if I can pronounce it, Aserbanapal. 
That was also his name. Okay, now, but the key is, we have worshipped your God since the days that they brought us here. What they failed to say was that these Assyrian kings introduced their own gods whom they worshipped. And you do a little study right out of Wikipedia. You don't have to go to a theological dictionary to get this. Who was the chief deity? I'm going to read some of it, not all of it, because some of it is R-rated. Here is, here is the god, primarily the chief goddess that these kings brought in to mix with the Jews who worshipped Yahweh. Now, this is so huge, and we see this way later on in chapter 4 of John. They hadn't stopped. This is, this is why we need this teaching. They hadn't stopped worshiping Yahweh. Worshiping Yahweh, that part was true, but what they did was just mix their worship. The goddess was named Inanna. She was an ancient Mesopotamian goddess associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She was originally worshipped in Sumer under the name Inanna, this is interesting, and later worshipped by the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians, this would be in the days of these two kings, under the name of Ishtar. Hmm, sound familiar? She was known as the Queen of Heaven. Sound familiar? Individuals who went against the traditional, now this is Wikipedia's statement. I like the way, I, I don't like the way, I, I, I'm just fascinated by the way they say it. Individuals who went against the, quote, I'll put quotes around it, traditional gender binary. What in the world is that? Well, that's what we're hearing all around us today. Traditional gender binary simply means the way God created us to be as men and women. But lo and behold, even in ancient times, it was seen as a cultural construct, a social construct, gender binary. Those who went against that, are you following? were heavily involved in the, cut, uh, in the cult of Inanna. During Sumerian times, a set of priests known as G-A-L-A, you pronounce it Gala. That's, that's a word that's in use today. Worked in Inanna's temples, they performed elegies and lamentations. Men who became Gala sometimes adopted female names now, this is, straight, this is straight out of when you do a historical study that you, you can access on the Internet, and it's not a Christian thing. This, this is not a, a political rant. These things are not new, folks. Let me drop down. Dressed in female clothing, performed war dances in Ishtar's temples. 
Several Akkadian proverbs seem to suggest that they may have also had homosexual proclivities. Gwendolyn Leak, an anthropologist known for her writings on Mesopotamia, has compared these individuals to the contemporary Indian Hydra. You can look that up, or you can ask Jabbah. He probably knows about that group, that cult that exists in India to this day. In one Akkadian hymn, Ishtar is described, that's the goddess, as transforming men into women. When the, in, when the adversaries, the wolves, came to Zerubbabel, and the heads of the households, it seemed innocuous. Hey, we, we just want to be helpful. This was not a friendly barn raising. This was not a, a, an offer to help uh, to, to, to do disaster relief. And Zerubbabel wasn't fooled. By the way, it takes something to get there. It doesn't come automatically, and we'll see that at the end of the, the, the message. He saw that what they were trying to do was something that we call, this is a big word, syncretism. We see it all around us. Syncretism is when, again, we worship, we worship Yahweh. We just want to bring in Ishtar. It's called syncretism. When you try to combine the two and it's polluted worship. And we're going to see in, in the response of Zerubbabel and the other guys what they thought about that. They sacrificed to Yahweh. This reminded me of the solas, but not Yahweh alone. Okay, let me just stop here. Do we worship Yahweh through Jesus Christ alone? Yes. And anything, any ism, any theology, any, any philosophy that seeks to come in and say, let me help you in your worship, in your building of the temple, whether it's the church or your individual life, is going to result in syncretism, which is going to result in polluted worship, which is not honoring to God. You can violate worship in one of two ways. First commandment. Who knows the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. That's the ten-finger method. What is it? One God. Come on, kids. One God. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, they said, we, we've got the true God. So you're worshiping the true God. Ah, but the second commandment, what is it? Don't worship idols. That's worshiping God in the wrong way. So they were violating the first and second commandments. It was a strange alliance. Years ago, when I was the pastor in the second church that I served in Maumelle, Arkansas, we had, back then we had Sunday night services. Anybody remember Sunday night services? Oh, okay. Several. Some of those hands went high. I don't know. Do you, like you wanted one again. Okay. And uh, so we would have, we usually had just a really great time. And there were a couple of guys that came in, uh, sat in the back for a couple of weeks, and then left. Didn't know really who they were. And uh, um, 
finally, about the third time, they came down. Now, this, this is what was interesting. They were Mormon missionaries, young guys. I just thought, man, these guys are here and they're hungry and they, they really love the Lord and they want to study his word. They were not dressed in their uniform. They didn't have their elder name tag on. Elder, 21 years old. Hmm. They, didn't, they were just dressed in plain clothes, I guess. And so they came down and began to engage me in some conversation and told me that they were Mormon missionaries. I, I knew, and I'm a young guy, uh, but I knew what they were there for. They were there to proselytize our members. They wanted to come in and say, I and that's what they did. They said, we worship the same Jesus that you do. And we talked for about two hours. I tried every biblical theological argument. They, they parried with their own theological arguments, and finally, it, it really came to me out of, the, out of 1 John, and I, 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 I did this, and it, it really just cut through all the fog. I said, okay, man, we could be here all night, but let, let's do this. I worship Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. Now, this is bedrock stuff, okay? This is not just a difference in eschatology. Because they had told me that they believed in Jesus. And I said, the Jesus that I worship is the God of the universe as the second person of that God. And here's what I'm going to do. And I said, I'm going to bow down on my knees. And I'm going to pray to Jesus as God. And if you can join me, in doing that, then you're welcome to stay and study the Scriptures with us. And if you're not, then I'll ask you to leave so that you will not infect members of this congregation. They wouldn't do it because they do not worship Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. And it just kind of reminded me of the question that probably you've thought of as you've thought of different kinds of things, has God really said? See, when the world comes in, it's going to work through influencers. It'll work through a pastor or maybe a, I, I don't know, a, a Christian celebrity pastor or a Christian celebrity musician in music. Theologians, I hear, I hear the word theologian and expert used a lot today. And they will seek, and, and, and maybe they're out there. I mean, they've got public forums, but, it, but it's essentially what the world is doing is seeking to worm into your life individually and your family's life and your church's life through these influencers who are saying, I just want to help. In 2019, our denomination passed a resolution called Resolution Number 9. I went back and read that this week. And it is slick. It's saying we need help understanding how to do evangelism and while we would never say that there's anything but the Word of God, we're going to use 
a decidedly non-Christian kind of ism, philosophy, to help us out. We're not trying to take over. We just want to help out. Critical race theory and intersectionality. That was the resolution. And it passed overwhelmingly. And I'm telling you, in our denomination, that could, that one issue could be a a major breaking point. It is already infiltrated. Uh, Somebody called it a Trojan horse. Several years before that, there was a conference held before the SBC. I'm just sticking with the things I know. There are other things that are out there called revoice. Wanting to redefine what Paul clearly says in Romans 1 about unholy affections to normalize those so that they will be accepted in the church. And I've heard what people have said when when I've talked about some of these things. Pastor, do you think you're just being judgmental? Do you you think Zerubbabel and some of these other guys were being judgmental? Or were they being discerning? Shouldn't you be more gracious and open-minded? I shared last week something that saddened me. Greg Epstein, who's an atheist, he calls himself a humanist rabbi. He's the author of a book, Good Without God. Is that possible according to Romans 3? No. He was elected unanimously as the chief chaplain at Harvard University. Parenthetically, I shared this last week, Harvard University was founded, the the oldest uh, academic institution in America. It was founded by the Puritans to train Christian ministers. And he was elected the chaplain. Now, it's, it's a worldly institution now. There are institutions that started, they started good. By the way, it's not the church, okay? I'm not responsible for, directly for that kind of thing. We are responsible for the church and for our families. But this is what really, it, it threw, I, folks, this, threw, well, it kind of threw me. Shocked but not surprised because of some things that I've been seeing. And here's the question about this. When we have these Christian authors and experts and theologians that I have quoted in the past, that I I highly admire some of the things that they say, but then they start, it's like they're going, like a train going on a track. Are they just going on a side rail? Or are they going off the tracks? There are some that I will tell you, they're, they're a train wreck. Kenneth Copeland is a train wreck. Write it down, okay? But I don't know. So these are two tweets that came out from Tim Keller. Does does anybody recognize that name? He is an expert. He is, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. The guy is brilliant off the charts. His first tweet. Congratulations, Greg on your appointment. His next tweet, I, I think he was either anticipating pushback. So here's what he, but this even, I, this digs a deeper hole, I think. Greg is a friend 
whom I have debated. Now, here's this atheist, calls himself a humanist rabbi. Greg is a friend whom I have debated, and while I don't agree with him on many things, I wish him well. Wish him well doing what? Being the chief chaplain? What does a chaplain do? It is a religious advisor to 21,000 students at Harvard University that when they have questions about reality and about God, that his goal is to turn them away from God. Wish him well? I hope I'm not going too far on this, but I, I was just thinking this morning, if Tim Keller had lived when Adolf Eichmann was developing the final solution for the Jews in World War II, and he was a friend, and he had debated Adolf Eichmann and disagreed with him, would he have said when Adolf Eichmann, a member of the SS, was elevated to the place where he was going to develop how to annihilate the Jews? Congratulations, Adolf, on your appointment. Adolf is a friend whom I have debated, and while I don't agree with him on many things, I wish him well. In fact, the Adolf Eichmann illustration is not as bad as the current situation because this man is potentially leading these students to an eternity apart from Christ. Wow. How do I get out of that? I don't want to get out of that. Look, false prophets, wolves, false prophets will arise among the people. It's in the church. I am not saying that... I don't know. I, I'm thinking about emailing or whatever, Tim Keller, and saying, I have followed you. Our staff has studied one of your books. Are you just getting off the rails? See, there's a difference, again, in, in we, what do we do if somebody is getting off the track? You, cor you, you rebuke, you correct, you train in righteousness. Who am I to correct Tim Keller? Well, I appeal to the Word. But if, if he persists in that error, then what is he? What is he? He's a wolf. I'm not judging whether the man is lost or saved or whatever, but false prophets also will arise among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Oh, there's a lot of theology. That messes with your mind. But one thing that we can't do and that I will not do for Greg Epstein, the new chaplain, I will not wish a wolf well. Please, God, don't you either. Either way, we need to be discerning. So, Verse 3, what does Zerubbabel do? Now, I've, I've set this up. Um, his response, and you're going to read it in one of two ways. Either to you it's blunt, 
and it's narrow, and it, it's exclusive. Maybe even just a twinge on the racial or racist side. Or it's going to be knowledgeable and wise and discerning. So let me read to you from verse 3. You follow along because this is, this is huge. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, they all agreed together and the rest of the heads the fathers, how many heads of households do we have in here today? Don't raise your hands. I want you to note that you're included in this, not just the elders. Said to them, you have nothing to do with us in the building of a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the king of the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us to do. Now, let me ask you, were they being... Please, please answer this. Were they being judgmental or were they being discerning? That's huge. You know, there was a time when the, everybody knew uh, the Bible verse years ago. What, what's the most well-known Bible verse? What would it have been? John 3, 16. It's not that anymore. It's out of Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge. They were leaders who led their people. They were leaders who led their families. And they protected them from polluted worship and compromised living. That was their goal. Leaders have an obligation to protect, whether it's an elder in a church or a dad or a grandfather or, or, I'm not leaving out the moms, but I'm just saying right here, it was the men who were called to be discerning and to be decisive. All of us need to be. All of us need to be. All of you women, all of you moms, all of you grandmothers. But the primary responsibility is put on the, the, the men and that's why we, we have his qualifications. By the way, the, these should be for, for all men. And uh, last week we had our membership matters. We went over these kinds of things. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, a pastor must be one of those qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, able to teach. Had an excellent question about why are, are, don't more elders preach? Preaching is a specific calling and a specific thing that we do, but it's defined in Titus chapter 1, 9. The ability to teach according to the qualification for an elder needs to be this, holding firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what you want an elder. That's what you want in a dad. That's what you want in a grandmother, a grandfather. Well, you could guess that the Samaritans were greatly offended. How do we know they were adversaries? I say Samaritans. I'm going to go ahead and call them that because that's what they became. They were greatly offended, so next week we'll see how they went on the attack, full scale, full on, face to face. We're going to get you. 
when they knew that they couldn't worm their way in. Well, basically, they could have said, you guys are not very nice. Here's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear what a lot of people, like I mentioned a minute ago, and even more, want to hear from churches today. Sure. And they are hearing it. Sure. Come on in. We are welcoming. We are affirming. We are not, not non-judgmental of you, no matter what you believe or how you're living your life. That's what they wanted to hear, but that's not what they heard from Zerubbabel and the others, because they were discerning and they were decisive. Got a couple of illustrations that might tell you basically how I see, how I read what they responded with. First of all, I think Zerubbabel was saying something like this, yeah, right, you want us to mingle our worship of the true God, Yahweh, with your abomination, Ishtar, it's not going to happen. That's the kind of idolatry that got us into captivity in the first place. And by the way, we cannot be unequally yoked. This verse has only been used, if you're not married in here today, yes, you're, if, if, if you sit down and talk to me, get premarital counseling, and you're a Christian and your fiancé is not a Christian, we're, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk deeply about this and why it's so important. But it has so much more to do. This is about worship. This is about living life. This is about partnerships. This is about a lot of things. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership? Here's, that's the statement. Now, here's the underlying thought. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Ishtar, Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Here we go back to Zerubbabel, speaking to his adversaries, those wolves. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Young people, older people, don't accept a short-term fix that leads to long-term bondage. These are wolves, okay? Zerubbabel and the leaders are treating them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Are you going to try to be nice to a wolf that is trying to devour your children? I had this visual this morning. I thought, do I share it? And I looked at it. I, I didn't look at any alternative inter or, or, or translations. But Zerubbabel was saying, you shall not build with us. And I thought back to one of my favorite movie series, Lord of the Rings. If you've not seen the whole thing, just 
Google the clip when Gandalf is standing at the bridge with the people that he loves behind him on the other side. And the, what, what's the name of the, the fire demon? Thank you. Balgar? Well, I've got it written down. Hold on, hold on. I got this. Balrog. And he's there, and he's coming after Frodo and Sam and the other guys. <laughs> and I, I just, I went back and watched that clip this morning and to look at Gandalf's face. You shall not pass. That's what I see Zerubbabel doing. He's not being mean as much as he's protecting the people that he loves. Kevin DeYoung, a guy, a young guy, that has not gone off the rails, said this wisely, the world is catechizing whether you realize it or not. Look up his article on that. Kevin DeYoung. Let me say this to your parents, to you parents. The world is catechizing our young people and our children whether we realize it or not. Uh, Jan and I are helping teach in the third and fourth grade Awana class on Wednesday nights. We had our first time this last Wednesday. I am so looking, I love that age group. I, I love all of them, but that, that age group, it just seems, we're, we're going to have so much fun. So last week, I did some catechizing. A catechism is just when you ask a question, you get a biblical answer, okay? I did some indoctrinating in doctrine to put doctrine into them. Somebody is going to put doctrine into your kids, Parenthetically, I, I, this is not a plug. I just can't imagine anybody not bringing their kids to a program where they're going to memorize the Scripture. <laughs> so anyway, we did this. Third and fourth graders, are you here? Are you ready? We did some catechizing last week. Let's see if you remember. What's the big idea? That wasn't loud enough. What's the big idea? God is truth. That was our lesson. And this next Wednesday, we're going to have a new big idea. There is an absolute need to be discerning. Let me, uh, I'm going way over, and I was sitting there praying about it, and I said, God, I don't, I really don't care if I go over today, okay? Just think, I was going to preach through the whole chapter four. So you better be glad that I'm just going through three verses. How do we do it? For the Word of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, thank you, Scott, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, the discerning 
and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then we look at a text that we looked at when we were going through Thessalonians. Test everything according to the Word. Hold fast what is good. Uh, A guy by the name of Todd Wagner, pastor, I love this. He said, basically what we're doing, you've heard of the Surgeon General's warning. Well, this is the great physician's general warning. Ingesting false teaching will complicate your life, possibly eternally. Examine the Scriptures to see if the things you hear are true. Tim Challies, we're going to come back to him. Um, he, he's, just, he's got a book on discernment. I think he's one of the most right-on reviewers, writers, young guy. He, he's solid, solid, solid. Tim Challies. Uh, if you have a question about a book, he's probably reviewed it. So here's, here's his, here, here's his uh, we're not going to get all into this. We're going to end with this, basically. Discernment, this is his definition. Discernment is the skill. It's developed. You don't, you're not born with it automatically. You may have a little bit better ability to understand, a little bit better sensitivity, but you don't automatically get zapped with it when you become a Christian. You develop it. Read the quote about smell, developing your sense of smell later on. It's great. So it's the skill of understanding and applying God's Word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. And that's what we want to teach so that we're we're not going to just automatically blackball and tell you what you can or can't read. I was talking to Rocky Hales this last week. And he said this, uh, Rocky is a real wordsmith, you know that. Uh, We were talking, he said, just so succinctly, he said, Marty, our goal is not elimination, our goal is inoculation. So that we give you the tools by which you can discern. You've got them, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. Where does it start? Believing in Jesus. If you do not have faith in Christ today, Repent of your sins. Turn by faith to Jesus, the only Savior of the world. Believe in Him. Trust in Him, and He will save you. And then, He's coming again for you. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the the examples of people like Zerubbabel and uh, the other guys that stood with Him And Lord, I pray that you would help this congregation of Bible hearers that we progressively, we want to, if we're true Christians, we want to be Bible, not only Bible hearers, but Bible doers and then Bible teachers. Oh God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.